You're listening to The Desk Set, a bookish podcast for reading broadly. We're your hosts, Emily Calkins and Britta Barrett. On this episode, we're talking about books by immigrant authors. First up, we'll talk to author Angie Kim about her novel, Miracle Creek, which follows an immigrant family and an experimental medical treatment gone very wrong. Then we'll talk to Joe Anderson Cavinta, KCLS's Diversity Services Coordinator, about all of the services that the library offers to immigrants, refugees, and new arrivals. My name is Angie Kim, and I am the debut author of Miracle Creek, uh, which is a literary courtroom drama about a Korean immigrant family and a young single mother who's on trial for murdering her eight-year-old child on the autism spectrum. So before we sort of delve into talking more about the book, can you talk a little bit about the hyperbaric oxygen chamber that's the heart of the treatment and also the murder case? Sure. Yeah. So, um, for those of listeners who haven't read the book or don't know about it, it's, um, it is a tragedy and courtroom drama centered around a, uh, an explosion and fire that happens in something called the miracle submarine, which is a hyperbaric oxygen therapy chamber. And, uh, and, uh, we call it HBOT for short, and um, it's a real thing. HBOT is a real medical treatment that is used in hospitals throughout the world for um, things like carbon monoxide poisoning, um, for diving accidents, for gangrene, um, for faster healing of burns, um, all sorts of things like that. And it's also been used um, outside the hospital setting as an experimental treatment for a variety of things in recent years, including things like infertility and Lyme disease to cerebral palsy and autism. And um, that is that experimental use is what is at the heart of my novel. And um, it's drawing a, an experimental use like that in a group chamber that fits up to four patients and their caregivers that um, this tragedy occurs and there's fire um, involving the pure oxygen that's used in this therapy and um, people die and we fast forward a year to the trial. There's a lot of parental sacrifice in this book. Do you see parallels between immigrant parents who sacrifice to bring their families to America and the sacrifices that parents of special needs special needs kids make to care for their children? Yeah, oh, such a great question. Um, and I don't think that it was a parallel that I recognized until I was essentially done with the novel and getting feedback from my readers who noticed this parallel and said, hey, you know, this seems to be a big theme. And, you know, as a novelist, I was simply telling a story and I wasn't really thinking about sort of, oh, what are the themes that I'm going to explore? I just wanted to, you know, explore the story and the characters' lives. And, um, uh, but that is definitely something that has popped up a lot. Um, and I think, uh, you know, if I were to say what the book is about in a nutshell, it is about the extremes of parental sacrifice. So I do think that immigration as an immigrant myself, I came over with my parents when I was 11 from Korea to Baltimore. And um, so as an, an immigrant who's experienced this firsthand, I do think that pretty much all of immigration or most of it anyway, involves uh, parenting sacrifice for their children because so many parents and families that immigrate to the U.S. Um, are doing it as a sacrifice of their own lives, um, their own connections to their family, to their native land, to their language, all of those things for the chance of a better life for their children. So I really think that it's basically like giving up your entire life for your child or children. And then on the other hand, we have um, in the world of the novel, uh, this world of parents of children with special needs or chronic illnesses, 
Um, and I personally also belong to that set. Um, I have three boys and all three have suffered um, sort of medical mystery types of illnesses. And they're all fine now, but sort of there was a while there, like several years when my life was just sort of all about going to hospitals every week. Um, and so it's something that I've experienced myself and something that I also tried to highlight in the book. And it's this idea that when someone in your family is sick, when one of your kids is ill um, or has a disability, your entire life just sort of collapses and normal life collapses. And, you know, your life becomes about trying to make their lives better um, and trying to help them heal um, or have a, the prospect of a better future because you're so afraid of what could happen without, you know, you being there to help care for them, um, always. And so, and then, you know, and the effect that that has not only on the parents own lives, but also the siblings and things like that as well, and how it affects your relationships with other people. So all of those things I think are wrapped up and I definitely see the parallel and I'm so glad that you saw it too. So you mentioned that you came to this country as a, as an 11 year old, how did your own experience as a young immigrant shape Miracle Creek? Um, I think that it's fair to say that I lifted parts of my own life and just put it, you know, sort of like lifted and put it straight into the novel in some ways. In fact, there are paragraphs uh, from the novel itself that I lifted from essays that I had um, written and published about my own immigrant experience. And so there is a family, a Korean family named the Yu family, Pak and Young are the parents and Mary is the teenage daughter. And, you know, and they come over to the U.S. when Mary is 11. And in the novel, um, the father actually stays behind in Korea for four years and becomes what's known in uh, Korea as a wild goose father, a goose father. And um, that's in reference to the fact that there are millions of fathers in Korea who stay in Seoul and, you know, continue to work and make money for the family, but send um, his kids and wife to a place like the U.S. or maybe Australia or Canada or something like that so that they can get the kids can get a better education and the goose reference is to the fact that they migrate or fly, quote unquote, once a year to see their families. Um, and so this is a recent phenomenon. This is not what happened to me. Um, my Both my parents came over um, with me uh, when I was 11, but I just thought that that was a really interesting um, dynamic that now happens and something that really shows the, the very, very extremes of parental sacrifice. So I thought it interesting to put into that novel. Um, but going back to my own life, we did come, uh, to Baltimore. My parents worked sort of night and day, you know, uh, 6am to midnight hours at a tiny little grocery store in downtown Baltimore, really dangerous neighborhood, um, really thick bulletproof glass that surrounded the entire store. And once my dad made the mistake of stepping outside the bulletproof, uh, glassed area, into the vestibule and was even was shot. Um, and thankfully the bullet grazed his neck. So he was only injured and recovered, but, um, but that's the kind of thing that we dealt with. And I was, um, left in the suburbs of Baltimore because they just thought the store, um, was too dangerous for me to, you know, live in with them. And so I stayed with my aunt and uncle in Lutherville, Maryland, which is um, right next to Towson. And I went to school, you know, there with my cousin to the public school there. Um, and I think it's that whole experience of having gone through this immigration experience where, 
on the one hand, I gained so much from material comforts because in Korea we were really poor. We didn't have running water. We didn't have, you know, separate bedrooms or anything like that. We all slept in one room. Um, and then I came to this, you know, luxurious house in Baltimore where I had my own bedroom. I, there were multiple, indoor bathrooms, um, which I'd never even seen before in a house. Um, so all of that and everything I gained versus everything that I lost, you know, my parents, um, with whom I spent so much time back in Korea and were very close to were all of a sudden gone. And I saw them maybe once a week, if that. And so, that contrast between sort of subjective versus objective comfort and uh, happiness um, was something that I really considered a lot in the lives of immigrants and something that I definitely try to inject um, into the lives of these characters that are at the heart of Miracle Creek. Yeah, I think that's that really came through for me. I had not thought sort of what happens after you get here beyond the language barrier and sort of just the cultural differences. But the fact that Mary is living in this house and her mother is sleeping on the floor of the store and they're not seeing each other for, you know, four years, it really changes their relationship. So on one hand, um, Young is making this huge sacrifice for her to, to work and, and to bring her to, to be in this country. And at the same time, she's suffering Mary's suffering this huge loss of not being able to be with her mother. It's just a really interesting portrayal of an experience that I definitely hadn't thought about before. Yeah. And especially, you know, in today's climate, when we're talking about, you know, children being separated from their parents and, you know, the logistics of that, there's so much more than just the logistical um, element of that. Because even, you know, even for children who are older, like I was, you know, that really, really affects the way that you think about your um, family relationships, certainly, but also about yourself and sort of, you know, um, the confidence and self-esteem that you might have. Um, and I think that's something that is so hard to understand until you've gone through it. Because on the one hand, you know, I remember like people, um, sort of acquaintances of mine in school being like, that's so cool that you get to be by yourself all the time. You don't have to deal with annoying siblings and you don't have your parents telling you to do your homework all the time. It's great that you're living by yourself essentially. And, you know, there is that freedom, but of course, when you're actually in that situation, it's not, it's, you know, it might be fun for like a day, but, um, beyond that, just the loneliness and isolation and the separation from this foundational element of your life. That's always been there, your parents and that relationship, it really changes you. And, um, and I think that that's something that hopefully readers will, you know, read and, um, through the story, at least try to get a little bit of an understanding of why that's so important that we're talking about that today. So one of the things I really enjoyed about the book is we see, we get to hear from multiple characters. And so we see the same interaction from multiple points of view. And it's so illuminating to have this reminder that you can be in a conversation with someone and see it in a totally different way than they see it. How did you think about creating empathy for all of your characters? Oh, thank you. I really um, enjoy that element um, because that is something, you know, in, especially things like overheard conversations that, you know, you, um, sort of think about from one person's perspective and how things can get so misunderstood. And then when you actually go back and see it from somebody else's perspective, something that you thought was sinister, um, or, um, something that was maybe a clue to why they were a bad person actually turns out to be like completely different. And I do think that that is the key to creating empathy for the characters is actually getting into each person's head. And that's one of the reasons why um, I wrote from all, all the major characters perspectives, except for, I guess the lawyers maybe, um, 
And I just thought it was really important to actually see what happened that leads up to this tragedy, um, as well as the effects on their lives from the tragedy, the thing, the before and the after from everybody's perspective. So there are seven POV characters that I write from throughout the novel. Um, and each chapter ha- is written from a different character's perspective per day. Um, and there are four days in the murder trial. So it's sort of structured in that way of they're separated into four days and each day you hear from different characters. And to me, when you get into somebody's head and you see what prompted them or motivated motivated them to say a certain thing or do a certain thing, it totally changes the dynamic than just seeing what they're like and how they come across to other people. So somebody who comes across as being you know, um, somebody who's arrogant, let's say, and then you actually go into their head and see why they behave that way toward the other characters and why they said this, the things that they said, and you realize it's not arrogance at all, but it's, you know, insecurity. And I think we've all had that kind of, uh, experience with friends, um, or people who maybe you didn't know very well. And then over time they become your friends and you start realizing more and more of what motivated them and what are the forces in their lives that make them act a certain way. Um, so I think it's both from an empathy perspective, but I also think that there's a flip side to seeing the interior thoughts of all of these characters, which is that it actually makes them possibly more unlikable because, and I think that that's also natural. I think that, you know, we as human beings all have shameful thoughts, um, things that were sort of like, oh my God, I can't believe that I just thought that just now, or that I was considering doing blah, blah, blah. Um, that's, I'm, I'm such a horrible person. We all have those thought, those moments, I think, but they're, you know, interior. And so you don't usually confess those thoughts to the public. And because they're not public, you know, you keep that part of you sort of hidden from the world. Well, in a novel like this, you know, and I think this is what sort of separates literary novels versus um, the ones that are more just all feel good um, and, you know, don't go beyond that, which is just there are, you know, every character, I think, has moments like that where they are ashamed of something that they've thought or they think something and they know that they're being bad people by thinking it or considering it or doing something. And because we're in their heads, we see those moments. And in fact, those are probably the moments that I like to highlight for the reader. And so I think that, you know, um, I've heard from readers now that some people find that to be incredibly humanizing and and make the characters um, sympathetic. And then there are some people who are like, you know what? I really don't like that. I really don't like that that character thought such bad things. And so therefore I'm going to declare that person unlikable. And it's so interesting to me that we can have those different um, reactions as readers, but that is definitely a danger in showing the deepest thoughts of these characters as I have tried to do. Both the courtroom and the oxygen chamber seem like natural settings for novels for me. They're sort of these unusual high pressure situations where people are taken out of their normal lives and put in, I mean, sorry for the pun, but sort of a combustible situation. Do you see absolutely between the two? Yeah, um, I really do. And also, um, so it was interesting. I was at an event last night at a bookstore and I had this discussion um, with actually a teenage girl afterwards who had read it and who was asking me about this. And I just thought it was so insightful. And she said, you know, not only are the the chamber, the sealed in chamber, um, like uh, the courtroom setting in that way, it's full of drama. There's so much conflict. 
um, and it is outside um, the normal life, but also is that sort of a metaphor or symbol for um, things like autism and the isolation that, you know, when you are locked in, um, in a situation where you can't verbalize your thoughts um, in a fluent way, that you feel like you're locked in, which I thought was really an interesting way to think about it as well. Um, but I do think of both the courtroom and the sealed in oxygen chamber as perfect crucibles. In fact, like, you know, if you think of um, Arthur Miller, the crucible like that, the trial and the town, you know, that kind of element was sort of seen as the crucible, even though there really wasn't, I guess, a physical um, such thing. Um, but for me, that's one of the reasons why I chose the HBOT chamber as sort of the perfect setting for my first novel that I ever attempted to write is because I've experienced this actually personally myself. One of my kids did um, do one of these experimental group chambers um, for ulcerative colitis when he was um, very little, when he was four, and none of the standard treatments were working. So I experienced this, and it is this crucible feel. It's, um, you are locked in and there is this combustible situation. There's all these feelings and conflicts and situations that are sort of swirling inside and there's no way to get out. So, you know, physical way it's a crucible and an emotional way it is as well. Um, and, you know, and courtrooms have often been thought of crucibles for that reason as well. So I do like that parallel between the two. And I like that the novel is sort of like uh, divided into the moments leading up to the explosion, which are all, you know, mostly spent in this sealed in crucible of the HBOT chamber. And then afterwards we're looking at the effects and trying to suss out exactly what happened, which all of that is going on in this other sealed in, you know, uh, setting, which is the courtroom. So one last question, which is a two-parter, uh, what are you reading now? And do you have any favorite books, either fiction or nonfiction that you think do a great job of reflecting the immigrant experience? I'm going, going to actually start reading this afternoon is uh, Melissa Rivero's um, The Fair of the Falcons, a debut author friend of mine. And it was released in the spring of 2019. And I haven't read it yet, but I'm starting this afternoon and I'm really, really excited. A book that I just finished not that long ago, probably the last book that I finished, I think, is also an immigrant um, experience novel, which is Searching for Sylvie Lee by Jean Kwok. Um, which was just the Jenna read with Jenna pick for the today show, um, in June. So it, that just ended yesterday. Um, and that is a fabulous sort of literary mystery about one immigrant sister who is, um, missing, and the younger sister having to go overseas to try to find her missing sister and try to figure out what happened. And we hear from the two different sisters' perspectives, as well as the mother, um, who is, you know, Chinese and who is talking to, or Taiwanese, and um, is talking to us, um, you know, obviously in English, but it's in that sort of very lyrical, poetic, full of... Uh, sort of mystical symbolism and metaphor type of language of um, her native land. So really, really interesting, fabulous page turning type of book that I can highly recommend. Um, and let's see. And uh, one book that I am, I am in the middle of, and I'm loving, loving so much right now is one of my favorite authors, Jamie Mason, um, whose first novel, Three Graves Full, was a literary suspense um, mystery 
And that was from, I don't know, I want to say five years ago or something like that. And I read that and I was like, I will read whatever this author writes because I just love her voice and I love her writing style. And she's just weird and quirky and in the best, best possible sense. Um, and I love weird and quirky. So um, in her latest novel, and I'm reading the advanced reader copy, it's coming out, I think, later this month, is called The Hidden Things. And uh, it is fabulous. So I highly recommend it if you're a fan of literary mysteries and thrillers. Well, I am. So I'm going to add that to my list. It sounds awesome. Oh, good. Yay. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk to us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to get a chance to talk to you. Anderson Cavinta, I'm the Diversity Services Coordinator for the King County Library System. And what does that entail? That's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> it entails a lot. So diversity services encompasses a number of things. Um, it's working on anything that's diversity, equity, and inclusion related and carrying out our values in our services, our programs, our outreach, being a support to our staff who are doing the work in the communities. Um, it also includes managing our adult education services. So tell us a little bit more about what kinds of library resources, like what do those services look like? Yes, of course. And so our adult education services um, provide some core services to immigrants and those who are learning English, um, including our ESL classes, which we partner with community colleges and independent instructors to provide free classes in our libraries. The other class is called Talk Time, an English conversation class that is facilitated by volunteers who create space for folks to come, learn, and practice their English. But beyond that, find social connections, um, learn from each other about navigating U.S. culture, things like idioms, uh, and just understanding um, uh, their community and, and finding friendship. Um, another class we have that's offered by volunteers is our citizenship class. And so this is preparing for naturalization, including um, studying for the test. We also, I should mention, um, have some adult education programs for Spanish language learners specifically. We have uh, adult education programs, two of them. One is Plaza Comunitaria and one is High School 21 Plus. And so it's a pathway for adults to continue their education wherever they left off. Maybe it was in grade school. And so they're working through an online curriculum and working with volunteers to uh, advance their education. And those who graduate from Plessis can earn credits towards a program called High School 21 Plus. So High School 21 Plus is a program offered at our local colleges. Um, it's a state program where folks can earn their Washington State Diploma. So it's a great alternative to the GED. As the name implies, if you're 21 years old uh, plus, you can enroll and take not just academic credit that transfers, but any life experiences that might transfer into credit so you can walk away with your high school diploma. So we offer that course in Spanish through the Renton Technical College at Bellevue Library. Cool. Uh, and can you tell us a little bit about the Welcoming Center? Yes, I would love to. So the Welcoming Center officially launched in May, and this is a collaboration between the Kent Library and diversity services and the diversity committee. Basically, uh, we wanted to create space to um, provide additional support as well as a point of connection for new arrivals, uh, immigrants, refugees, folks who have been in the country for five years or less, essentially. And so we house it at the Kent Library. And think of it as... Um, 
a service that includes wraparound support. Um, it's a connection point for service providers. Um, and one of the most essential components of the Welcoming Center are two welcoming ambassadors that we hired from the community. Uh, we felt it was really important to hire folks to provide the service that uh, came from lived experience of what it was like to be a refugee and transition to um, not just the U.S., but the Kit area specifically. And so we have two folks, Muhammad John and Sayida, who provide a weekly um, meet and ask a welcoming ambassador session where they create space in the library. So we have a pop-up little area on the public floor where we have a banner and a tablecloth signifying who they are and what they do. And the staff can refer folks to them or vice versa. And basically, um, both Muhammad John and Sayla have been working full-time and are working full-time at uh, human service agencies, providing information about health, housing, employment, resettlement, and so they're just very knowledgeable and experienced, both working in those spaces, but also having gone through it uh, themselves. And so just that idea of what we've learned is is the value of those connections and creating meaningful connections. Um, and uh, the services themselves have been great. But it's kind of been secondary to to creating a, a space of belonging. Uh, so we do things like family social time, and we also are going to start a driver's education course for Afghan women. And so these are things that the community has identified and said uh, through our work in, in outreach over the last few months to say, you know, this is what we need for economic empowerment, self-determination. Um, how can we partner with the library to make this happen? Can you talk a little bit about why Kent Library? Yes. So Kent is, um, in King County, a hub for refugee resettlement. Um, it's interesting how uh, those areas are determined. It's basically, these are areas in the county that have services and housing uh, available. And, you know, housing uh, is becoming, uh, it's it's increasingly becoming a challenge in King County. So we see folks are resettling uh, further and further south. But uh, traditionally, in, in our history over the last 20 years, uh, refugees have uh, resettled in the Kent area, Tukwila, and then through secondary migration uh, throughout the county. Uh, and when we talk about immigrants and refugees in the King in King County sort of broadly, can you talk about the different kinds of populations that we're talking about? Because it's really... A range. We have a when we say immigrants, we don't mean like one kind of person coming from one part of the world. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So um, it starts with understanding that there is a difference between immigrants, refugees, and asylees. Um, and so when we talk about refugees, we're talking about people who are fleeing persecution in their home country, moving often. Um, living in a refugee camp for many years in a second country, and then through a very long process, uh, some folks are selected to resettle in a third country. Um, oftentimes, you know, either folks never get to leave uh, the refugee camp, or um, efforts are made to resettle them back to their home country. That's the most ideal. Or they resettle in the country that they fled to, or they come to a country that accepts uh, refugees. And so King County is one of those areas. And as a refugee, when you do get selected and go through the process, the vetting process, you usually don't know where you're going. So... Um, so you could end up like anywhere you can end in up anywhere. the world, essentially? Yes, yes. Wow. And so uh, places like New York, Minnesota, <laughs> and King County. So um, the other thing is if you are fleeing um, and you're requesting uh, from the government that you're fleeing to for some amnesty, uh, you're seeking asylum. Mm -hmm. um, as we know at our southern border, this is 
um, a huge issue uh, currently. Um, so there's folks who are just, you know, in limbo, uh, waiting uh, their fate. Uh, and then uh, traditionally, immigrants are folks who um, are leaving their home country to uh, uh, live in another country, and um, you know whether it's to pursue opportunity or to find um, to live with family. There's a number of different reasons why folks might leave and start their life in another country. And so my mom came here from the Philippines. Um, in her early 20s um, and it was bittersweet because you know there's a lot of things a lot of reasons why she wanted to stay family ties um, definitely one of them but just knowing that if she came to the U.S., she might be able to afford her family a better life mm -hmm. and so but there's many reasons why people come and in terms of where people are coming from where are our largest populations coming from? Sure. So in Kent, um, we see a lot of folks from Afghanistan, from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, for many years, uh, Somalis and Vietnamese and, uh, let's see, folks from Ukraine um, are, are like the largest populations in King County mm -hmm. and it changes given our policies mm -hmm. you know we all know about the the current travel ban uh, also known as the Muslim ban so there's certain countries where um, resettlement has really slowed mm -hmm. um, and so but we have agencies uh, around the county that actually meet at the Renton Library through the King County Refugee Forum, and they they talk about uh, the challenges of resettlement, um, where folks are, are currently coming from, um, provide resources and, and network to each other. Um, and so, you know, we also know King County has a, a huge population of Latinos. We have many Pacific Islanders, many Filipinos. Uh, it's just a very diverse area. We're one of the most diverse areas of the country in terms of immigrants. Um, and so I think we were at, the last time I checked, 22% of our wow. population. So one in four um, folks. And uh, compared to the country's national average of about 13%, uh, we're nearly double. And this has all occurred in the last 20 years. I knew it was higher than the other parts of the country, but I didn't realize it was that mm -hmm. high. Mm -hmm. uh, when you said Pacific Islanders, I was reminded that I was at a meeting recently where people were talking about our collections, mm -hmm. and we had a request for one of our libraries in South King County, and I can't remember which one, to start a collection in Marshallese, yes. uh, so from the Marshall Islands, which mm -hmm. is... Uh, you know, we face a challenge in terms of just finding books that are even published mm -hmm. in that language. But uh, I am just astonished uh, when I learn about the diversity of our of our population in general, but particularly our immigrant and refugee population. Yeah. We also have in the north part of the county kind of a different looking population, mm -hmm. right? Because we have a lot of uh, immigrants who come to work right. at, at tech companies. Yes, yes. So a large uh, Hindi-speaking population. Um, we have a huge uh, Chinese-speaking uh, population on the east side. And so basically wherever you go within King County, it looks a little bit different. People's circumstances are different. Mm -hmm. Their needs are different. And so we have a world language collection, for example, that has 22 different languages. And you really have to think about it as 22 different collections yeah. because folks have different reading habits and interests. And so trying to keep up and whether you can find materials in their language is another challenge yeah. that our selectors will tell you about. But yeah, it's very interesting. And that's reflected in our classes as well. So talk time at Redmond is going to look different from talk time in Auburn. So um, just depending on where you go, what folks, what um, English proficiency folks are at, mm -hmm. what they're interested in learning about, what kind of connections they're making um, can be very different depending on where you are. Yeah. And the concept of a free library is not one that's shared globally. Have you found that it's sometimes difficult to market and communicate like, no, seriously, all of the mm -hmm. stuff? get it for free. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's that's one of the things that for some folks, some folks did grow up with uh, public libraries and folks, some folks it, it is like an amazing um, 
uh, resource. I remember we were doing an immigrant stories project, and a man from Ethiopia was like, man, it was, it's like finding a candy store. Like, I could get 100 <laughs> items and no questions, and I can just bring it back and just um, happy to tell his friends about it. Yeah. So uh, Aromo Ethiopian, he would have me correct. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it's always this kind of great opportunity. Um, so we were talking about the Welcoming Center, but just a way to introduce public libraries to immigrants and refugees and as well as service providers. It's like, check out what, you know, we're a great collaborator. We're a great partner to have. Look at the resources that are here and, you know, how we can cross-refer and, and make sure that folks know about these services. All right. So we also asked you to bring some favorite books that are by immigrants or share immigrant stories. Do you have some stuff to share with us? I do. So I think I'll start with How Dare the Sunrise by Sandra Uringimana. Um, And so this is a memoir. Um, She... uh, grew up in the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, but she's from a minority tribe that had fled to the Congo from Rwanda. And um, the book is about, it's basically a love letter to her people. Um, It starts out at the massacre at the refugee camp in uh, the Gatumba refugee camp in Burundi, where her family was, they thought, temporarily um, settling while things calmed down back at home. And she talks about just being born into a country where the threat of war was just constant, that you can't get through a school year without some threat, having to pack up everything you own, you know you can um, at the drop of a dime and and having to go either stay with family or in this instance stay at a refugee camp uh, for an undetermined amount of time until it was safe to go back. Um, And so she starts there, but then she also talks about um, her family um, where where they had an opportunity to resettle in the U.S. So you get to hear from a first-person account about the refugee resettlement process. I hear it constantly at the meetings I'm at. Oh, it, you know, you get about three months of support, and then you're basically on your own, and you know, and all of the things you need to do in order to be even qualified to um, come over as a refugee. And so uh, it's interesting because uh, she talks about that process and when they do make that decision to leave, because it's, it wasn't an easy decision, of course. And so leaving everything you know, um, all of your friends, all of your family, your beautiful country, um, and resettling. And, you know, the, the, what you think or expect <laughs> when you hear about America mm-hmm. and then the reality of the resettlement process. Um, We also heard about this process when we were talking to uh, refugees through our Immigrant Stories project. And just, I remember one person saying, you know, I just kept thinking, oh, this is the land of milk and honey. And then I resettled to a more affluent area, and it was. (laughs) And then I resettled to Yesler Terrace, and it was a new reality. And so just kind of the the not knowing what to expect Mm -hmm. and trying to maintain hope through the process. And so um, in... um, How Dare the Sun Rise. Um, She just talks about as a young person because she was, I think, 10 when the massacre happened. And then um, when she came over as a teen and and entered school a couple grades below where she was actually at and just being really frustrated with that because she was proud to be such a good student and then not knowing English. However, she knew, you know, um, many other languages. Um, And so having to start over and then being um, the the role reversal with her parents that they were so strong they were the ones who taught her everything and now she was needing to teach them about U.S. culture and being their translator. There's just a lot of relatable things if you uh, grew up here uh, as an immigrant, even though I was born here, just 
having some of those similar experiences of being frustrated with having to be a translator for your parents or, you know, just the subtle differences in, in cultures and just the, the going to, you know, the conflict of being Americanized. And so what I love about the story is it, it talks about that progression um, from a firsthand account and then just, you know, really, you know, not dealing with that trauma and having to deal with it later. Mm -hmm. She talks about going through the trauma while she is a college student and it just kind of all of a sudden flared up and and just um, was really devastating and and changed the course of her life uh, as she became a social activist and made sure that folks knew about the massacre because what she also talks about was just, you know, she thought that Americans didn't didn't care and she was learning that a lot of folks just didn't even know Mm -hmm. because as we know through about war and genocide in other countries, it's not on the nightly news or it rarely is and you're learning about it through other sources and just yeah just trying to to come to terms with why we don't hear about these atrocities and how difficult it is when you do hear about it to understand where our humanity is in all of this and then the difficulty of just kind of going through your day-to-day life mm-hmm pretending like everything's normal and so just the the amount of guilt uh she talks about that in this book as well um uh of also being a survivor um and so i don't want to give too much away um but it's a beautiful story it's uh it's um it's definitely uh, insight that not everybody um, has an opportunity to hear from someone who has lived through it. I also highly recommend um, Sea Prayer by Khalid Hosseini. Uh, you'll recognize him from his amazing breakout uh, novel, The Kite Runner. And so he's um, born in Afghanistan and uh, a physician in California turned author. And um, so I recognize his name from that. And um, when I actually downloaded Sea Prayer as an ebook, it was um, one of the books we put on um, a book list that I was really curious about. And so I was flipping through it in overdrive, reading it, bawling. <laughs> And then it stopped, and I was like, "Oh wait, this is this is a very short letter. It's a, a it's a letter from a father to a son. Uh, they're Syrian. It's and it's on the eve of their um, journey um, on uh, the vast ocean. And so I had to go pick it up. I was like, "Is this right?" <laughs> uh, it's beautifully illustrated by Dan Williams, and so it's watercolor and it's um, a really quick read. But again, it's just um, it puts you into the it. It provides you the lens of someone who is fleeing, um, and also addresses just like in how dare the sunrise the what you're leaving behind um and the devastation um uh that comes with with war and what's just heartbreaking about this story is he's like you know son i wish you saw the country i wish you saw our our city of homes before it was completely annihilated and before all of these just daily terrors became your norm and so it's just a you know the the kind of running theme of like you know folks are not wanting to leave their homes they're you know not wanting to put themselves through this idea of resettling in a place that they have no knowledge of, sometimes not speaking the language, sometimes, you know, whatever it might be. And so this thought and idea that, you know, perhaps if folks knew what the experience was really like, what folks are truly leaving behind, that we might have more empathy that we might be able to at least grapple with uh, racism and xenophobia that folks are experiencing when they come to the U.S. 
because he talks about, you know, we know we aren't necessarily going to be welcome, but there's really kind of no, no choice in the matter. And now we have to, to take this journey that, you know, it's very questionable if we'll survive. And so he kind of leaves you hanging in that regard. But, um, yeah, definitely, definitely um, would recommend um, taking a read. Again, that's Halid Hosseini's Sea Prayer. Yugi Morales, children's book Dreamers. I love that book. I know, it's right? so beautiful. Let's talk about that. <laughs> and so... Um, I had the opportunity to see her when she came to uh, Lake Forest Park to our connection site and also the third place books. And uh, she started out just talking about some of the toys that she remembered from her childhood and she'd break them out and show us how to play and, and what it meant to her and her culture. And then she read Dreamers to us. And of course, again, you're just like, <gasps> <laughs> It's one of those those books where, especially if you grew up with an immigrant parent, that it's all the feels. <laughs> and so basically, um, she starts uh, talking a little bit about the journey to America. This is actually her story. And when she came over, um, she came with her infant son. And then I, I believe they're in San Francisco mm-hmm. and trying to navigate mm-hmm. and anything from public transit to, you know, just just kind of learning the language as you go and then finding the public library <laughs> and just, you know, the unleashing all of those possibilities, kind of um, uh, finding that hope and inspiration because Yuyu Morales, she does all her own artwork and um, she just has all these amazing stories um, that, you know, it, it's really kind of this ode to the library, mm-hmm. which, you know, there's um, this beautiful spread. Yes. <laughs> walk into the library and the picture books are yes. all and it just it gets me every time right and, uh, you know yeah you want to think like oh the library makes a difference for people and it's so clear that for her it really did and right. yet she's incredible I mean her illustrations are so beautiful they're kind mm-hmm. of collage and mm-hmm. um she's a wonderful writer and yeah yeah and you know what I, I loved also in that story was the the reference to I think it was a backpack she was carrying mm-hmm. that had all of these um, symbols of home, mm-hmm. but also is just very kind of symbolic of you know keeping your culture, keeping your language, keeping and holding those things dear with you even as you're adjusting and and trying to fit in and finding a sense of belonging and learning a new language. That how important it is to to remember all of that. Thank you for coming to talk to us today about all the amazing stuff that you oversee at the libraries and some good books and. We really appreciate it. Well, I was like so excited that you asked me. I'm <laughs> terrified. <laughs> but it was a fun experience. Thanks for listening. You can find all the books mentioned in today's episodes in our show notes. The Desk Set is hosted by librarians Britta Barrett and Emily Calkins, produced by Britta Barrett and brought to you by the King County Library System. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts.